Welcome to Crosspoint Community Church. We are here to help each other worship, live, and rescue like Jesus. For more info on who we are, go to cpmodesto.org. Once again to Crosspoint, uh, my name's Kyle. I'm one of the pastors here. In case maybe I haven't had the chance to meet you, and uh, it's it's been a hot minute since I uh, have gotten to share from here on a Sunday morning, and a lot of that's just scheduling stuff. And uh, in the summer, in the student ministry world, like we have a lot going on. We are gone a lot and had all kinds of stuff, and and uh, it's always things that I, I always get really excited about the, the stuff that packs our summer. Stuff like camp and the mission trips, and you guys even got an opportunity to hear some of what those students experience on those different trips here on a on Global Homecoming Sunday, if you were here and a part of that. And uh, I'm, I'm always really, really grateful that you get a chance to hear what they experience. And um, it's always a really good uh, opportunity for those students, but I also just want to say this for myself, for my part, Man, that is maybe one of my, it is my favorite thing that we do as a, as a ministry. And it's one of the best things we do as a ministry. And there's all kinds of conversation you can have about like short-term missions and all that stuff. I get it. But we can't, we can't ignore like the incredible impact that it makes in these students' lives when we do it right, when we see it for what it is, and when we are obedient to Jesus in it. Um, but it always comes with a problem for me. Like it is genuinely like probably my favorite thing we do throughout the course of the year, um, just on a purely selfish level. I love getting to go do that. There's no better way to see the rest of the world than by doing it co-laboring with other people who are part of our family. Like vacations, okay, but to like co-labor with your family in a different part of the world, there's no better way to experience things. And uh, and I always come back equally as challenged and inspired as the students do every single time. But I'm going to pull back the curtain a little bit and let you see the really dysfunctional heart and mind that exists inside of me. I come back from that, and every time I have like this mini existential crisis. Every single time we return from a trip like that, because we see things that are really challenging to us. We experience God moving in powerful ways. Um, maybe we are uh, we see maybe a different part of who God is, a different part of His heart. Um, we get to see a much bigger picture of the church and of His family. And then uh, every single time I come back, and I have this like funk that I'm in. Megan knows it. My kids know it. Our fellow uh, workers at the church know it. They, they just know that that's coming. And I remember especially a couple years ago, it was right after COVID where we weren't able to go for a year. And then we got to go to Honduras and we got to see God do some powerful, powerful things. Um, and we came back and the next event on the docket was our, our end of the summer block party. And there's nothing wrong with that. What we did is we got a bunch of inflatables and we made a bunch of food and we gave away a bunch of dumb prizes. And I remember walking around that our campus on that night being like, what am I doing here? Like, I just saw God doing all this stuff and saw these people like so committed to his mission. And here I am wandering around amongst inflatables, eating terrible hot dogs, giving away inflatable pineapples or something like that. Like, what am I doing? And I remember texting Matt Whiteford and being like, Matt, fire me. Like, what am I doing with my life here? We're just playing around. Now, not in like that terrible spot all the time, okay? Every single time that that happens, there's always a person, student, friend, a mentor, maybe just the time that I'm spending with God where he kind of says, hey, everything you're thinking is kind of valid, but there's a lot more I want to do with you here. 
So you need to pause for a second and recalibrate. You need to pause for a second and be reminded of who I've made you to be and what I've called you to do for right here, right now. It doesn't mean everything before shouldn't be listened to, and it doesn't mean that there's nothing coming forward. But God has been always very faithful in those moments in my life to kind of say, hey, pause for a second. You need to reorient. You need to recalibrate so that we can move forward to do what I've asked you to do. Now, that maybe isn't your experience, but I'm almost positive every single one of us has had experiences like that, where we look at where we've come and say, wow, that was a lot. And we look to the future and we're like, man, that seems like a lot. And we're at this moment, we're like, what am I even doing here? God is so faithful to press pause and to remind us of who we are and what we're doing. And the reason I bring that up is because I feel like that's where we're at in 1 Peter right now. Um, If you've been here over the last several weeks, Matt and Travis have talked through some massive issues, right? We can all agree with that. Huge, huge issues of identity and inheritance and chosenness and submission. Last week alone, Travis had to tackle these these passages that are really, really difficult for us to wrap our heads around, and even more so to actually live out in the world around us. And so we have dealt with some huge, huge stuff. And spoiler alert, we're also going to deal with a bunch more really, really huge and intense stuff in the weeks coming forward. But it feels like right now, where we're at in this, in this letter that Peter wrote, he's pressing pause and he wants to remind us about a couple things. It's not a break. I will say that. This is as heavy as anything else we've been through. It's not a break, but it is kind of pressing pause to say, hey, it's almost like he gathers in here and gives us a pep talk. He's like, hey, we've been through a lot, right? And there's a lot more to come, but I just want you to hear a couple things about who you are so that you're ready, so you don't lose sight of the big picture. And I think that is exactly what he spends time doing. He takes time to tell us who we are He takes time to tell us what we are called to do. And then he even kind of commissions us on how to go and do it. It's only four verses we're going to look at today, but it is chock full of some important, important truth about who we are and what we're called to do. So you can turn there if you want to follow along. First Peter chapter three, we're going to read verses eight through 12 by the time that we're done here. And uh, we're going to start looking at verse eight, all right? So he starts off by saying, finally, all of you, which I appreciate because basically he's like, none of you get off the hook. Like I know we just talked about three really specific examples of submission with government and, and, and marriage and, and uh, a slave master. I know we talked about those things. I know we've talked about a whole bunch of stuff about inheritance and chosenness and being a priest and all these things. But if any of you thought that you were off the hook, I just wanted to let you know you're actually included in this. So he says, finally kind of the culmination of everything I've said up to this point. He says, all of you, this is what I want to see. This is who you are. He says this, have unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love, a tender heart, and a humble mind. He lists five things that he says, this is what a Christian, a follower of Jesus ought to be about. A unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love, a tender heart, and a humble mind. Mind. All right, I got to confess something to you, um, and I hope that some of you are in this same boat. Otherwise, I'm going to feel like a terrible, terrible person. Oftentimes, when I read the Bible, because I've read the Bible like a fair amount, like many of you, when I get to a list of things, 
oftentimes I'll just kind of glaze over them. Does anyone else find themselves doing that? Because you're like, there's going to be bleed over in another list. Like, for sure, it's going to mention love. It'll probably talk about unity, and it'll probably say something about compassion. So I'm sure that I got the gist of this. And then I move on to the next thing that isn't so obvious to me. I find myself doing that in the Bible and in lots of other places in life, too, where if I kind of feel like I already know what's going on, I'll kind of gloss over it and move on to the next thing. But what I have found many times over, I have to keep being reminded, is that if we slow down a little bit when we hit a list like this, um, it says way more than we originally thought. But we have to slow down a little bit, kind of take that pause, like I mentioned, so that we can really see it for what it is. And when I slowed down and read through this list and really like sat there and, and thought about it and considered it, uh, I kind of, I discovered two things. The first one is this. The first time I read this list, I thought it was just actions. I thought what Peter was saying is you need to choose to be unified. You need to choose to show sympathy. You need to choose to love like a brother. You need to choose a tender heart. You need to choose a humble mind. I don't think that's wrong. I, I think that that is what's in here. But what becomes really clear as we look at the bigger picture here is these are not just actions, that these are characteristics. These aren't just what we do as followers of Jesus, and this is a big distinction in my mind. This is actually who we are. We don't just choose to be unified. We are unified. We don't just choose to show sympathy. We, it, it, it comes out of us naturally because of who we are. When the world looks at us as Christians and as the church, this should be what's on display. So that's the first thing I noticed, I discovered when I slowed down enough to really look at this list. And the second thing I discovered after a little bit of research is that this list was written in a very specific way and not a way that I usually read lists, not the way I would write this list, that's for sure. So if you, um, and maybe you can identify with this, maybe this isn't how your brain works, but if I were to write down a list of characteristics about myself, I would do it maybe in one of two ways. I would either start with the things that are least important about me and kind of build to like the, the, the bigger, more important characteristics of who I am. That's how I would write a list. Or I might approach it and say, hey, all of these things can kind of stand on their own. They're all connected, but they stand on their own. They're not put in there in a very specific order. And there's nothing wrong with that. That's, that's a very like Western English, like American like way of looking at information. And there's nothing wrong with that. Um, but it's not how a lot of literature throughout history was written. That's what I discovered when I took time to look at this. In fact, this passage, like many others in the Bible, both New Testament and Old Testament, it utilizes a literary device called a chiasm, okay? And so a chiasm, like long story short, we don't have time to go into all of it, but what it's supposed to do is it's supposed to reflect similar aspects in a list or in a poem or in a writing. And so your attention is supposed to be drawn to two different things, but recognize that there's a connection between them. Let me explain it a little further. So if we numbered this verse with these attributes, which, with these characteristics, we would look at it and probably number it one, two, three, four, five, right? Does that make sense? But a chiasm would number it like this. They would number it one, two, three, two, one. And the ones are meant to connect, and the twos are meant to connect, and the three is the very center. So 
literary nerds and academics and smart people in the room, you're like, I got this. I knew what that was before you even told me. Why are you even wasting my time? Awesome. We need you. The world needs you. But for the rest of us, okay, who this is still kind of a concept that's a little bit difficult for us to grasp, this is how I've been thinking of it. So if you want to get all hillbilly with me, this is how I've been thinking of it, okay? Chiasm just feels pretentious coming out of my mouth, so it's the last time I'm going to say it. Instead, this is how I've been thinking about it. What Peter has done here, it's beautiful and it's helpful, and there's big ramifications for this. He's put together for us a big, delicious character sandwich. That's what he's done here. He's put together this big, beautiful, delicious character sandwich. And it's a simple sandwich, so don't, I mean, the illustration only goes so far. But the bread is meant to look similar to the bread, the top piece of bread and the bottom piece of bread. The spread is meant to look similar. I would choose mayonnaise and mustard because what's a sandwich without mayonnaise and mustard, right? And then the very center is supposed to be the meat. Does that make sense? That when we look at this, the first thing that Peter says and the last thing, that's the bread. They're meant to connect. The second thing Peter says and the second to last thing Peter says are meant to connect. And the thing in the middle is meant to be the meat of the sandwich. So looking at it from that direction, whether you are an academic looking at it in the uh, classical way or whether you're like me and looking at it from the point of view of a sandwich, this is what we are meant to discover. Let me read it again. Finally, all of you have unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love, a tender heart, and a humble mind. Peter starts by saying, who you are are a people who have a unity of mind. He wants us to have the same mind, the same goals, even act in the same way. But what way is that? Peter doesn't even say it, does he? He doesn't lay it out clearly for us. It's almost like it was too obvious for him to waste the pen and paper on. But I'm convinced that that's one of the places that we run into problems. When scripture doesn't expressly say something right in the passage that we're looking at, we tend to fill in the blanks. And we do that when it comes to unity all the time. We talk about unity all the time. Everyone in here would say they want, they want unity within our church and within our world. But oftentimes we're defining it the wrong way. We think having unity of mind is based around ideologies or viewpoints or talking points or academics or like camps or issues that we can dig our heels into. And what we end up doing is we trade harmony, which is a better definition of what this unity of mind is, for conformity that looks exactly the same surrounded or gathered around certain viewpoints or ideologies. And what becomes really, really clear when we actually look at Jesus, we actually look at the Bible, is that the church gathers in unity not around a set of ideas. Pause, don't scream heresy. But the church does not gather in unity around a set of ideas, but we gather in unity around a person, Jesus. Now, he has a lot to say about how to live for him. He has a lot to say about how to view the world, but constantly, when he walked this earth, what was he doing? He was saying, come here. Come be with me. Gather around me. That directive hasn't changed. We don't gather around a specific set of guidelines. We gather around the person of Jesus. We take our cues from him. We're to focus our thinking to conform, not to talking points or not to 
cultural norms, but to the mind of Jesus. 1 Corinthians 2 talks about it. And that we pursue unity by becoming like him. Philippians 2 talks about that. Helpful picture I saw this week was it's like an orchestra. Like we're all playing different instruments, some better than others. But we got one person that all this is wrapped around, the one that holds it all together, and that's the conductor, and that's Jesus. That's what pursuit of unity is. But let's be real. Can we just be honest for a moment? We are terrible at it. We are terrible at it. We look around this world, and all we see is division. We look within this church, and sometimes all we see is division. We look inside ourselves, and sometimes all we see is division, division, division. So is it impossible? Can we just not do it? I'll be honest with you. Sometimes I feel like throwing my hands up, be like, I guess it's impossible. We'll just do our best. But real unity is not on the table. We can get some half version maybe, but real unity is not on the table for us to actually embrace. Could that be true? I don't think that it is, and I think that's why this character sandwich that we're looking at here is so incredibly important. Because when we look at the other piece of bread in this sandwich, what do we see Peter highlight? We see him highlight humility. And that our harmony, our unity around the person of Jesus cannot happen without a mind and heart of humility. This has been huge for me as I've been thinking through it. Because you can force ideas, you can manipulate other people to think like you think, you can use all the tactics of the world to convince people that you're right, or yourself that you're right. But you cannot have the unity that Jesus promises and wants and prayed that we would have without humility. I am convinced it will not happen. Nothing destroys unity. Nothing destroys our like-mindedness like pride, because it's every single one of us thinking we know best. We know what we need, and most of the time, we know what everybody else needs. I am so sure that part of the reason, maybe the reason, that we see so much divide and such a lack of unity in our church, and I say the church in general, and sometimes our church, and we got to own all of that, is because a lot of us haven't dealt with our pride or are not actively trying to deal with our pride. It always blows my mind, and this is totally anecdotal, so you can dismiss it if you want, but the places where I have seen the deepest unity of mind and heart around the person of Jesus just so happened to coincide with some of the most humble people I have ever met. Here in this town, here in this church, and other places in the world, these are people who will absolutely, I have no doubt, will die in obscurity, but are rock stars in the kingdom because they submit their way to Jesus all the time, and they have incredible unity with people who are so different than them, who might even think on some important issues polar opposite than them. But they are able to be unified because they are pursuing humility. When the, church, when the world looks at us, church, they need to see people who are unified around the person of Jesus because we are choosing humility. The second thing that we see as we take off the top layer and start to dig further down into this character sandwich is we find that Peter says, um, Peter says this should be evident in the life of a follower of Jesus, and that's the idea of sympathy. Uh, this idea uh, that we're meant to grasp here when, it, when he says sympathy is it's an awareness it's a, it's a willingness of others' needs and feelings 
Um, it reminds uh, me of scripture where scripture talks about us rejoicing with those who are rejoicing and mourning with those who mourn. Um, probably the truest definition of uh, sympathy is to suffer with, which absolutely applies to the situation these Christians find themselves in. But what's different and interesting that Peter would use the word sympathy is you don't have to have experienced what someone else has experienced to show sympathy. It's interesting, over the last few years, there's been like this uh, turning away, this like kicking to the curb, the idea of sympathy, and instead an embracing of empathy. Is everyone on, on the same page as me? It feels like we would much rather like lift up empathy and say sympathy uh, can only go so far, and, and it's not really as true as showing empathy toward a person. And I'm not here to pit those things against each other. I think empathy is incredibly, incredibly important. I think people need to be able to see someone else who, say, who can say to them, I know exactly what you're going through. I've experienced the same things as you, and so I feel them deeply with you. That is necessary, and I think really, really important. But Peter says that a characteristic we should have is sympathy, not empathy, sympathy. To look at someone's life, rejoice, mourn, and suffer with them even if we haven't experienced the same things they have. And I would make the argument that genuine sympathy might be more compelling to a, to a world who is watching us. Because I, I don't mean this to be callous at all, but it's like I don't have like an emotional dog in that fight. I don't know what it is you're going through. And if I did, of course I would identify with you and I would feel things dif- uh, deeply with you. But instead, we can look at someone and say, I don't know what you're going through, but I will sit with you and I will re- mourn with you when you need to mourn and rejoice with you when you need to rejoice. And even as I say that, maybe some of the hairs on the back of our neck kind of go up and we're like, Ugh, but sympathy has like pity attached to it and like kind of pandering sometimes. We've seen it go bad so often and not actually be good for anyone. And I think that the one of the big reasons of that, again, comes back down to why this character sandwich is so incredibly helpful. Because when we look at the counterpart to, to sympathy in this character sandwich, what do we find? We find tenderheartedness. Again, this word is meant to point us to a deep feeling and emotion. Like the original like Greek word, it like very literally was, was uh, translated as like your guts, like your intestines and your liver, like your guts. And so it was used a lot um, to describe like these deep, deep feelings. And so if those are good feelings, it's a deep compassion, a deep care for each other. And that's the key, I think. We can practice, as followers of Jesus, real, helpful sympathy with each other, if, but, but only if we actually really, really care about each other. We see how it goes wrong all the time. Sympathy driven by image will only go so far and will actually cause a lot of damage, right? Sympathy driven by duty will only go so far. Eventually, someone's getting burnt out. But sympathy, a willingness to rejoice and mourn and suffer alongside each other, in this place and in the church globally, driven by a genuine care for each other, that is powerful. And we better believe that the world would sit up and would notice that if we, if we were really driven by that genuine care for each other. We find ourselves now at the center of this identity sandwich, and we find the meat. What Peter describes here as like the very center of all of this, of who we are, is something he describes as brotherly love. And honestly, it shouldn't come as any kind of surprise to us that this is at the center. 
Jesus told us that the world will know that we belong to him because of how we love each other. That who we are as people who are chosen, people who are priests in God's kingdom, that we really are a family that cares about each other. And that the wor- when the world looks at us, they should see us loving each other the way the fa- a family loves each other. Not as strangers, not as acquaintances, not with an, an affinity kind of love or a conditional kind of love or a temporary kind of love, but the kind of family love that goes all the way. This is who we are. This is what the world needs to see when they look at us. A family who shares in each other's joy and suffering because we genuinely care about each other who through our pursuit of humility have become unified around the person of Jesus. What an incredible picture of who we are. But let's be real, that's a tall order. Does every single one of our lives look like that? Mine doesn't look like that all the time. That is a big, big identity to live into. But it's clear as day what Peter writes here. When I, when I run into scripture like what we've done today, um, I always feel like I find them to be two things. And maybe this will be helpful for you. First of all, I find them to be hopeful. I find it to be hopeful because if Peter wrote this under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, then it must be something we can actually live into. That God has said to us in no uncertain terms, this is who I made you to be. A family who cares about each other because you actually care about each other who is unified and who is pursuing humility. He says, this is who you are, so this is who you can be. I find that to be incredibly hopeful. I do not think, I don't buy into this that God would say, hey, be this kind of person, and then be like, ha ha, you actually can't ever even get close to this. I just don't buy into that. Like I do, we don't have to live our whole life like steeped in defeat. Now, is sin nature gonna be an issue for us till our dying breath? Yeah, I think so. But can we exit this world or welcome Jesus back to it as king, looking more like him than than looking like ourselves? Man, you better believe that. Otherwise, like, what in the world are we doing? Why are we wasting our time? So I find this incredibly hopeful because this is something God wants to see in us. And through his spirit, we can move closer and closer into a life that resembles this. That's incredibly hopeful. I also find it really helpful because Anytime I come to a list like this or a passage like this, it's really a great way for us to kind of test ourselves against what's written here, to test ourselves as individuals, to test ourselves as a church. Are these things true of us? Do we function like family? Do we sit in each other's tough and great moments because we actually care? Are we unified because we are humble? And if the answer is yes to those questions, yes, like glory to God, let's keep going. And if the answer is no to some of those questions, we have a very obvious next step to take. I think we got to get, I I do this all the time, so I'm not not trashing on anyone, but we got to get past this thing where we come in here and we're like, yeah, things need to be different. Yeah, things need to be different. And then we go out and we totally forget about it and we come back here a week later and we say the same thing over again, like, oh, things got to be different. But when we look at scripture, we look at it and say, hey, this is something helpful to test my life against. I have a very obvious next step to step forward in. Mine is sympathy. I have a real hard time being sympathetic. And I think it's because I genuinely don't care about some people that I should. 
So what's yours? So Peter wraps up that reminder. He says uh, he's done a pretty good job of reminding us of who we are. But one thing that we know about Jesus is he doesn't just change who we are to just change who we are. He also invites us into a new purpose and a new calling. And so Peter lays that out here as well. He's not cute about it. He doesn't beat around the bush. He just straight up gets to it and starts by telling us what not to do. He says, you want to know what you're going to do? You want to know what you should do in my kingdom? I'm going to start by telling you what not to do, which I can appreciate. I'm not always the most nuanced person in the world, so I can appreciate Peter starting by saying, don't do these things if you want to find out what you actually should be doing. So in verse 9, here's what he says. Do not repay evil for evil. In essence, what he says is like, when wrong actions are perpetrated against you because you are my follower, do not pay them back in the same way. This shouldn't come as new information. This language should even sound familiar if you've been a part of our church family. You don't pick up the weapons of the world to fight back against them. And for a lot of us in this room, we're like, I can do that. I think I kind of am doing that. Like, I think if someone perpetrated a wrong, sinful, evil action against me, I might be able to decide not to retaliate in the same way. If someone ran up here right now and punched me in the face, I think I could probably hold myself together enough to not swing back. If someone broke into my house last night and stole all my stuff, I think I could handle not finding out where they live, going to their house and stealing all of their stuff. So this is a great start, but this is not the end. Peter says, don't repay evil action for evil action, but then he goes one step further and says this, or reviling for reviling. Ooh, uh uh-oh. What's reviling? Other translations say slander. Other translations say insult. The idea is like it's it's what comes out of our mouth. And a lot of us can hold together the way we act. Much fewer of us can hold together what we say, right? Or what we type how we present ourselves, it's much, much easier for us to pay back evil with our mouths than with our actions oftentimes. But what Peter makes clear, man, what comes out of your mouth is directly connected to what's inside of you. So not only with what we do, but also with what we say, he says, do not pick up these weapons of the world. They're not good for you. They don't have any place in God's kingdom. You cannot repay evil in the same way. And even that, some of us might be like, hey, I can do that. I won't pay back evil actions for evil actions, and I won't pay back evil words with evil words. I will stand here like a stoic, and I will take the abuse, and I will move on. And honestly, I'd be kind of okay with that if that's all the more that Peter called us to be, but it's not. He doesn't let us off the hook there. We are to respond when the world inflicts evil on us because we're followers of Jesus. And remember, their context, when when we say that, it wasn't like, I don't know, we get made fun of, like they were getting killed, drug off to prison. Peter says, you do respond, but you respond in this way. It says, but on the contrary, bless. Instead of repaying evil for evil, or evil words with evil words. Instead, be a blessing. Not just because it's a good idea, not just because it feels right, but because this is what you were called to. 
This is how we are called to live. When the world inflicts evil on us, we repay it with blessing because that's who we're called to be, that you may obtain a blessing. It's not enough for us to just stand as followers of Jesus in the face of evil, but instead we're to be this blessing to everyone, maybe even especially to those who hate us. That idea of blessing that has that priestly connection that we've been talking about over the last several weeks, to advocate to God on behalf of people, even people who hate us, and to bring the heart of God close to people, even people who hate us. To speak up for those who cannot, to lift up those who are held down, to unburden those who are under crippling weight, to show forgiveness to those who hurt us, and to care for everyone around us. Not as a suggestion, not as an option, but because it's what we're called to. Man, if we want to know our purpose, I hear this all the time. I want to know why I'm here. This is why we're here, to repay evil with blessing. That's a big deal. That our eyes would be so open to how we can pour out a blessing emotionally, financially, with our time, with our presence, with our undeserved forgiveness, with our skills and talents and resources, that our whole deal is to be on the prowl, to be a blessing, even especially to those who pay us in evil, because that's how we live in the blessing, in the inheritance that we have been promised. What we are supposed to be is just this big conduit, and that's been the way it's always been since creation, since Abraham, since Jesus, and now a real possibility because of the Holy Spirit living in us. So Peter's taking the time to say, hold on a second, I'm going to pause, I'm going to remind you of who you are. I'm also going to remind you of what you're called to do. And he ends the passage with some instruction on how to actually do it. It's almost like a benediction that he throws out there, and it's a quote from Psalm 34. And it's not a random, he didn't just pick it out of the Old Testament. Um, it mirrors very closely what he just said to us. And it was written by David at a time in his life that was very similar to where these Christians are and where we are today, where he was anointed as king, but Saul was still king, and he was coming after him, and he was trying to kill him. And life was going really, really bad. He was getting a lot of evil paid to him. And this is his response. I would just like to read it to us. It's kind of our marching orders as we get ready to head, out, to head out of here and into a world that will inflict a lot of this evil on us so that we have the courage and commitment to respond with blessing. Verse 10, he says this, whoever desires to love life and see good days. So cross point, us. If we desire to, have, to, to love our life and to see good days, let us keep our tongue from evil. Let's keep our lips from speaking deceit. Let's get control of our mouth and what we say about each other, about the world, about who God is. Make it genuine, make it real, make it authentic. Make it honoring to God. Verse 11 says, let him turn away from evil and do good. I love that he doesn't just say ignore evil or remove yourself from evil, but instead fill that space with doing good, doing the things of the kingdom and let him seek peace and pursue it. Let us seek that blessing that we've received that needs to go out to a world who needs it. Let us go after that. He encourages us at this last verse, he says, for the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous and his ears are open to their prayer. 
when we embrace who we are and what we're called to be, God sees us. He hears us. It makes him happy. But Peter doesn't let us get away without one last little stinger here. He says, but the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. This is no small thing. The stakes are high. When we embrace who we are and what we're called to, God sees us, hears us, and is with us. But when we ignore that, this is just what Scripture says. His face will not be on us. We can't mess around. We have to go after this with all that we have. And you may have noticed um, the last several weeks, we've been taking communion a lot more at our, at our church. That's because it's, uh, honestly, it's what the church has done for a long, long time, um, because Jesus is our focal point, not anything else. And this is the constant reminder of who he is. But what a beautiful opportunity this morning to do exactly what Peter has done for us. And there's there's, uh, some at the back. If you guys don't have one, you're welcome to go grab one. But just like Peter said to these Christians, and the Spirit says to us, pause for a second. I want to remind you of some important things. So Jesus did that on the night that he was going to be betrayed. He's sitting with his best friends, all that were about to abandon him, even though they didn't know it. He said, it's almost like he brought them in and said, hey, guys, we've been through a lot, haven't we? We're going to go through a lot moving forward, even though you don't know it. But I want to take a pause right here, and I want to remind you of who I am. And I want to give you a way to be reminded of who I am for centuries to come. He took out this bread. Um, You know, we got a cracker, but he took out this bread, and he broke it. He said, you see how this bread breaks? This is how my body's going to break soon. You have no frame of reference to what that's going to be, but my body's going to break just like this. And the reason that that's necessary is because I want you to be a part of my family. And through my sacrifice, you actually will be able to be a family that sympathizes with each other because you care, that in humility is unified around me and what I'm about. So every time you do this, take a pause and remember me so that you can remember who you are meant to be. Let's take the bread together. Then he takes the cup. He says, you see how this wine pours out of this cup? Pretty soon, my blood is going to be poured out in the exact same way as a, as a ransom for many. And through my life being poured out, it'll be brought into this family so that your life can be poured out as a blessing to the world around you. So every time that you eat, every time that you do this, do it to remember how my life has been poured out and remember how your life is meant to be poured out as a blessing to the world around you. So let's pause for a moment and let's remember how his life was poured out and how ours needs to do the same. Let's drink the cup together. Life is fast. There's a ton of stuff in it. We've been through a lot. And there's a lot more to come. And I'm just really grateful that this morning we get a chance to pause. It's not a break, it's a pause. <laughs> to remember who we are remember what we've been called to, but it can't stay in here. It's got to leave those doors and go into our life. So let's pray together as we get ready to do that, the more important work, I would argue. Jesus, thank you so much for being so faithful to remind us who you are and remind us who we are. Man, it's so easy for us to forget. It's so easy for us to get it muddled. 
but I'm really, really thankful that the version of us that you offer, the truest one, it's the best one. Lord, I pray that we would embrace it. I pray that if there are characteristics in our lives that are missing from what we just read today, Lord, that we would be ruthless in making sure that those are evident in our life so that when the world looks at us, they see you. When they see how we interact with each other, they actually have a real picture of you. Lord, thank you for calling us into some incredible purpose. Lord, we don't want to punt on that. We want to embrace it with everything we have. Thank you for reminding us of it. Give us the strength and the courage to walk it out as we go out of this place. Jesus, we thank you for what you have done in here this morning. But God, I pray that it is just a fraction of what you're gonna do the next six days outside of this building in the world where every single one of these priests, every single one of these members of this family walking in unity and humility, caring for each other, repaying evil with blessing. Lord, I pray that this is just a small fraction of the really cool things we'll get to see as we go do that. Man, we love you. We thank you for what you're doing here at this church. Lord, let us just be behind it with everything we got. In your awesome name, amen. Thanks so much for listening. We hope you feel inspired and moved by what God is doing here at Crosspoint.